Naming the elephant. Abraham Maslow is a psychologist, and he is famous for his pyramid, his hierarchy of needs. And the idea here is that, you know, uh, some of it is pretty obvious. If you, uh, if you can't breathe, right, you need air. If you can't breathe, you don't care if you're thirsty, right? And if, you're, if, if you need water, you don't care about, you know, where the Ritz crackers are. There's a certain practical uh, hierarchy of needs, and so he puts everything in life in terms of this hierarchy, however, body, mind, and spirit. And it kind of suggests that, that these needs are always sort of ordered this way. Well, the problem is that once you get to a certain level of functioning, you know, we don't really know what we need from what we want. Isn't it true? We don't sometimes know our needs from our wants. And on the edges of life, whether it, it, you're, you're extremely wealthy or very poor, on those edges, you see people making really bad choices. You know, for the sake of, of, of survival, sometimes make terrible choices in terms of what they need versus what they want. And people who are very wealthy sometimes make terrible choices in terms of what they need versus what they want. And here in the middle, where most people are, we get confused about what we need from what we want, don't we? I mean, who hasn't said, I can't believe I stayed up that late, right? Or did I really eat all that? Or I can't believe I didn't get that done yesterday. Every one of us has said something like that. And when you, when you see yourself, parents, when you see yourselves in your children, when they express themselves and they need something, you know how perfectly children say, may I have a glass of water, right? <laughs> That's how they say it, right? No, they say, I'm thirsty, right? And you begin to see yourself. It's as if they're saying, fix this now, right? And if it were up to me, I would have done this a long time ago. I would have fixed it already. I would have made life perfect for myself. We want to be in control, and we can see it in the lives of our children. And sometimes we can see it in us. And in our effort to be in control of our own lives, we often confuse our wants with our needs. And so the elephant this morning in the room is, is to name the fact that we want control, even if we have a really terrible track record of making choices. We want control. And so we're going to read a scripture, a fascinating, fascinating scripture to me, about Jacob wrestling with this, what's called a theophany, or an appearance of God, in the form of a man, or perhaps an angel. Jacob in the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs. Jacob, who is known as the swindler. Jacob, son of Isaac. Jacob, who is the, the father of, of the 12 that become the nations of Israel. Jacob, who, uh, who, who swindles his, his, his uh, brother's birthright, his older brother Esau's birthright out of, uh, from him for a, a bowl of soup. And then make sure, because they knew that that wasn't really a real deal, uh, he makes sure later he impersonates uh, Esau 
so that he could get Esau's firstborn rights. Jacob, who tried to make life work for him apart from God, who then ends up in, uh, under the, his father-in-law's tutelage and under his father-in-law's authority and grip, who wrestles out from under it through his own craftiness, is about to face Esau again. He knows that he's, he's left, he's made peace with Laban, his father-in-law. He, he is moving towards Canaan. He's going across the Jabbok River, which is a tributary into the Jordan. And he's got everything he owns, everything he owns. And he's sent them ahead because he knows he has to face, he has to come face to face with Esau. And they left on sort of questionable terms, and he's nervous. And now, he hangs back and has what's often known in modern discourse as the dark night of the soul. But there's a benefit to wrestling with God. There's a benefit to wrestling with God because the benefit, the benefit of wrestling with God is we begin to understand our wants and our needs. Hear God's word this morning from Genesis 32, starting with verse 22. Would you open your scripture this morning and, or look at the, the screens here as we give reverent attention to God's word? Genesis 32:22. The same night he, Jacob, arose and took his two wives. All right, we're not going to get into that. His two female servants, his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have strived with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask me my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. May God bless us today through this, his holy word. Let's pray together. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, Garth Brooks said it this way. He said, sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers, right? You've heard that. Now, I appreciate the sentiment, but I don't think he's right. 
I think it is an answer. Sometimes God says yes, sometimes God says wait, and sometimes God says no. There's a scripture where Jesus says, Who, what kind of father, if a, a son asks him for a fish, what kind of father would give him a stone instead? You know, you and I are confused about our wants and our needs. And sometimes we're the one who asks for a stone. And God will not give us a stone if we ask for a stone, if he wants to give us a fish. And so I think we have to understand that that there is a struggle in life for what we need and that God is in the midst of the struggle in order to help us understand better what we really need versus what we want. And so let's, let's, let's look at this scripture today, understanding that we need to understand what we really want and we need to understand what we really need. What we want and what we need. First, in the struggle, in wrestling with God, in taking your concerns and desires to God, God will strive with us. He will struggle with us. He will let us struggle in order that we might understand our wants, in order that we might understand that sometimes our wants put the gift ahead of the giver. And that's not good for us. God will struggle with us. He will allow us to struggle with him so that we can sort out when what we really are trying to do is put God's good gifts ahead of the one who gives them to us. You know, some of the loneliest people that I have ever known have been people who have insisted upon their own way again and again and again. And they've gotten it. They've gotten it. And as a result, they've really isolated themselves. Sometimes we can be very complex in the way we, we fight for our own wants. And it can isolate us. This was Jacob. Jacob was making life work for himself apart from God. What if Jacob, let's imagine for a minute, what if Jacob had not hung back at the, at, the, at the ford of the, of the Jabbok? What if, what if he had not hung back? What if he had just plowed ahead with, with all of the people that he knows, all of his possessions, that whole train, and plowed right into his future without this pause? What do you think he would have done? Knowing Jacob's track record, I imagine that Jacob would have somehow finagled his way into having the upper hand with Esau again. Don't you think? That's his track record. But he hangs back. He struggles. He wrestles with God. And as a result, he begins to see how he's put his wants ahead of its needs. He's also put the gifts ahead of the giver. You know, there's a... Uh, there's a little red book, very little red, one of the, the least known and, and least read books by C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce. And it has nothing to do with divorce. It's, it's a book about heaven and hell. And the picture that Lewis paints of hell is a picture of people who can get whatever they want, whenever they want. And the image is powerful because 
as people get what they want, they shrink and shrink and shrink. Their world shrinks into themselves. They get farther and farther away. In fact, there's one scene in there where he's talking about Napoleon. And Napoleon is, is in this great palace and he, he's getting everything that he wants, but he's getting farther and farther and farther away from everyone else. This is the way that Jacob had been operating. To make life work for him apart from God was to put the gifts ahead of the giver. And it was by any means, even to take the people and to, to, to think of, of the people in his life as a means to his end, is to take them from being people to being things. You know, when you make people a means to an end, you're treating them like objects. That's what we do. We lapse into this. We, when we want what we want, when we want it, and we have to have it now, we tend to run over people or we tend to manipulate people. And when we're manipulating somebody, we're objectifying them, we're making them into objects because we see ourselves as a person and them as less than. And this was Jacob. This was Jacob. And he begins to wrestle with God. And as a result, he begins to see he begins to see himself and the ways that he has put his wants ahead of his needs and even his wants ahead of God. You say, well, gosh, you know, he's doing the same thing with God. I mean, he's, he's sort of wrestling the way he wrestled with Esau, the way he wrestled with Laban, the way he's wrestled with everybody, the way he's wrestled with himself. He's doing the same thing with God. How is this any different? But he got, because he's wrestling with God. And you see, God would rather have us wrestle with him than wrestle without him. Isn't this what Jesus did with humanity? Jesus lets us wrestle him onto the cross. You see how God has been saying it from the very beginning from Genesis all the way to the maps, God keeps saying, I am the God who would be with his people at any cost, even at the cost of my own life. And here is this mysterious wrestling with this pre-incarnate Christ, perhaps, the angel of the Lord, a lot of times it's, it's called. It could be just sort of this, this appearance of the Holy Spirit. But it is man wrestling, humanity wrestling with God. And as a result, God in the struggle, reordering life. Augustine puts it this way, that, that the best definition of sin that he knows is disordered love. It's not that you love something too much. It's that you love it wrongly. It's that you love things out of order. And in wrestling with God, watch out. If you start wrestling with God in prayer, watch out. If you start sort of taking your needs and your wants and your concerns honestly before God, saying exactly what's in you, what's on your heart, not what's supposed to be in you, not some grand prayer, but exactly what you're thinking and feeling, watch out. Because when you wrestle with God, he begins to reorder your loves, just as he does with Jacob. Not only that, 
God begins to reorder Jacob's needs and he helps Jacob understand his needs. He lets Jacob struggle with him so that Jacob can understand the way he's getting his needs met may not be good for him. His MO, his modus operandi, the how he goes about his life in order to get what he needs in wrestling with God is exposed. God exposes us to ourselves. Calvin puts it this way. There's no knowledge of God without a greater knowledge of yourself, understanding yourself more is to understand more of where you stop and God starts. Understanding God more is, of course, going to reveal you to you, especially your needs and the way they're being met. Because they're kind of two different, two different kinds of selves. You say, Tim, I thought, I thought you're supposed to die to self. Isn't this whole thing about dying to self? I mean, I see Jacob prevailing in this wrestling match. In what way is he prevailing? How is that good? You see, they're really, we, we are wrestling with ourselves, and they're kind of two selves, and Jesus calls it the old self, the new self. And you know this is true, right? You know it's true in the ways you make decisions, like we were saying earlier, that sometimes you do what you don't want to do. And sometimes you wish you had gotten the thing done, and you didn't, and you wonder, what was I thinking? We wrestle with ourselves. But the idea of dying to self isn't that the whole of you is gone. That's Buddhism, <laughs> right? That's Buddhism. Buddhism says there is no you. Just forget about it, right? Forget about it, right? Forget about it. That's Buddhism. But dying to self is dying to selfishness, willfulness. It's dying to the part of you that would, that would order life ahead of God your life ahead of God. It would order God's good gifts ahead of the giver. Dying to self is to die to the part of us that is disordered, the part of us that would strive alone, the part of us that would be independent. To die to that part of us is to live fully awake and alive. This is how Marin, Marilyn Vansel puts it in her book that that describes sort of the benefits and the, and the, um, the, the she's, it's a book about the Enneagram and she's describing what's good about the Enneagram. I know that's sort of trending these days and so I want to make a comment about it in the middle of it, but here's what, here's what Marilyn Vansel says about dying to self. She says, realizing the profound truth that I actually had a self to find, a self to find, not just lose, was a life-changing moment for me a few years ago. I'd been confused about this for a long time, she says. Somehow I thought I was supposed to get rid of everything about myself in order to follow Jesus. You know, all of him and none of me. I knew the teachings about dying to myself and I would try to surrender all the parts of me over and over. I even had the idea that my ultimate destiny was to become someone different. Yet, there was always something pushing through the ground of my very being, trying to make itself known. I tried to dismiss it because, after all, this seemed like the Christian way to live. But I continued to experience discouragement and guilt and a subtle resistance to a God who seemed to discount me 
But see, what she's saying is, there is a self to lose, but there's also a self to find. Jacob is a rascal. He's like me. He's like you. He tries to make life work for him apart from God. He's a rascal, right? One of the translations says that Jacob means swindler, right? Swindler. Did you notice that he's given a new name? In the midst of finding his way, he finds himself. He is losing part of himself, but he is also finding himself. Chesterton said this, when I really began to discover Christianity, I realized that it wasn't a taming of life, but setting wild things free. There is a you that needs to live fully awake, alive, passionately, full on for God. Full on. And that's dramatic, isn't it? That's why Jesus says to Simon, I'm no longer going to call you Simon. You've undergone a major change. You've recognized who I am. I'm going to call you Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. You ever think that, that in the middle of this struggle is a great sense of faith because here's a man taking the struggle to God and he's being shown himself. He's now being called Israel. And Israel means a struggle with God. That's what it means, struggle with God. Sarita im Elohim, all right? So that's the, the Hebrew, Sarita im Elohim. And it's sort of a conflation of, of that phrase, struggle with God. You can see at the end of the word, you can recognize within Israel, you see El at the end of it. It means struggle with God. And shaking out of the struggle is this true sense of self. Not a false self, not an imposter, not here's what I want you to see kind of self, but a real strength, a real quiet strength coming through. Now, I mentioned the Enneagram. Maybe you haven't heard of the Enneagram, but it's kind of a a profile. It's a, a personality type. You've probably heard of the Myers-Briggs and maybe you've taken that, that kind of evaluation tool and you found out uh, maybe you're an introvert versus extrovert, intuitive versus sensing, those kinds of things. But, but that, that, that's kind of been pushed to the side. The industries aren't using that as much and there's been this real curiosity about something that's a little bit more ancient, actually. The Enneagram has nine different types And when you look at it, it looks sort of spooky. It looks like something that shouldn't have nothing, a Christian should have nothing to do with because, you know, there are all these sort of, there's a triangle and there's, but but it's not spooky. It's it's just basically saying, look, there, there, there are different ways that we all respond to woundedness in our lives. Life is a struggle. And when we're young and when we're malleable, when we're influenceable, when we're being shaped, Life's experiences really get into us, don't they? And there are different ways that we respond to those, and that that shapes the way we we grow. And it shapes how we respond to things in the present. And so one example would be, uh, you know, a a type eight is uh, is someone who wants to to take charge. And why is that? Well, uh, you know, a type eight type person is somebody who, who in the past was betrayed and now needs to be in control. And so when the person is operating out of a sense of selfishness or a self-protection or a defensiveness, that person is a command and control kind of person. 
But when that person is operating not as Jacob, but as Israel, then he begins to unleash a sense of strength to pursue justice for other people. Somebody who's driven, whose very sense of woundedness becomes a place of redemption to take that wound and to, to turn it outward, to say, I'm, you know, this thing that happened to me is now going to be redeemed in the lives of other people. This is exactly, exactly what this story is all about. God is redeeming Jacob, making him Israel, and turning his arrows outward. And in the very place he is wounded, in the very place he is wounded, that's a place of bridge building. That's a place of deep connection. That's a place of, of strength. You've heard this before. You've heard it in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, where Paul says, when I am weak, yet he is strong. What does that actually look like in your life? I'm not pushing the Enneagram, but what I'm saying is I know that many of you are already into it, and so I just wanted to comment about it. These things are tools, and, and, and you, know, you, you can't shape your life around them and sort of reduce yourself to some sort of number or type. It's absurd. But if you look at each of these different types, every one of us has experienced these different kinds of, of wounds, these different kinds of experiences that we respond to, and we have a go-to one. We, we tend to go to one over another. But do you believe, can you believe, that that place of woundedness can be your greatest place of connection and strength? You see, that's the result of understanding our wants versus our needs. The result is that even if you're limping, <laughs> you can begin to lead. See, the best leaders I've ever known lead with a limp. The best leaders I've ever known understand how their brokenness, even if it's exposed, can be a, a place of quiet strength, a place of connection, a place of encouragement. You've seen it and you've heard it before where somebody receives some sort of bad news or diagnosis and as a result, their life becomes an encouragement to other people. How they respond in the faithfulness and presence of God becomes the most encouraging uh, witness to the presence of God in this world that's so broken. And that's what this table is all about. It's the darkest moment of human history turned into light. Let's pray together. Holy God, we thank you for this meal. We thank you that it's present with us in our struggle. It is something we can see and feel and taste and smell and touch, that you are present with your people. And we pray, Lord, that you would set aside these elements from their everyday use to a sacred purpose, that as we receive this bread and drink from this cup, we might experience a magnificent exchange of our sin for your righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen.